Thank you, Caleb. Hey, good morning, y'all. It's good to be with you. I'm Dave, one of the pastors here at Frontline. We are so close to the end of Mark. We're going to be wrapping it up in a couple weeks on Easter. And so as we continue with a lot to cover this morning, um, let's pray with one another for one another. So pray with me. Even even the stories in Scripture that uh, are hard to sit under and read, we thank you, Jesus, that there is life here for us. There are things that are profoundly, completely true about you in this story that is good news. Mark begins with the proclamation of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and this, even this dark passage with failure and betrayal and denial shines bright as it relates to truth about who you are and what it means for us. So we pray, Spirit of God, you would help us see this and be just struck by the grace and the mercy of you, Christ Jesus. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. I was thinking uh, today, really this morning, of those instances, whether it's like organic or formal, where you might be hanging out with your community group at a family meal, or, or you're maybe doing some kind of icebreaker somewhere, and the question is uh, presented, hey, share your most embarrassing moment, which is fun, right? Because it's like you get to be like vulnerable, and you just grow like affinity for somebody when they you know, share something that's like, you know, just embarrassing, right? We all kind of like to do that, but we don't ever actually share the most embarrassing moment. Or like even the top 10 probably, we, we like grab like number 22 and we share that as if it's the most embarrassing because the real like shameful, most embarrassing moments we've like locked in a chest and, and put down in the basement of our memory and we don't even want to go there, right? When they come to mind, we shout them out of mind. We're like, ah, you know, forget about that. I don't want to go back to that moment when I was in, you know, seventh grade and accidentally put self-tanner on my face instead of pimple cream, you know? Like that was, and that's not even top 20 for me. That was just, you know, just one of those horrible ones that sticks with you, right? And I bring that up in all seriousness because one of the things that like is a constant through the Gospels, it was not my self-tanner for the record, it was my sister's and we shared a bathroom. I didn't own self-tanner when I was in seventh grade. That's an important part of that story. Still embarrassing. What we see, especially in Mark, and in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but especially in Mark, is just brutal honesty from the disciples about their failings. Like, it transcends just embarrassment. It's not just like, oh, funny, ha-ha. These are, these are deep and profound spiritual failings that they, the primary source of these stories, they're not hiding. They're not trying to revise history, but, but openly and honestly and, and completely, they're sharing their biggest mess-ups, painful moments in their history. And you see that, especially in Mark. You, you not only see it, especially in Mark, but you see it particularly in this passage, a, a portion of which Caleb just read for us. And even the last few verses he read, let me remind us, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, and he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. 
Now, if you're reading Mark and you get to verse 50 and you just skip 51 and 52, those two verses, and, and you continue in 53, like the story proceeds seamlessly without the little aside of some young man naked and afraid running away like a bad reality show, right? Like, why is that in there? Well, nearly every scholar, actually every scholar that I referenced, every commentary that I went to over the last couple weeks, they all are going to point in the same direction and say, hey, most likely this naked young man who's running away here is, is most likely actually the author of this gospel. It's John Mark himself. So like you might see in a movie sometime where the director makes a cameo, this is Mark's cameo in his gospel. And I just imagine him writing the account of what, remember, Peter is his primary source. He was like a right-hand guy, a ministry partner, an assistant to Peter. And so Peter, who looks so bad throughout the Gospel of Mark, it's Peter who's giving John Mark this account, being brutally honest about himself. And I just imagine John Mark writing down what Peter had told him and then coming to this moment where he thinks, well, I have a failing too. I'm exposed and shameful in this story too. And church tradition tells us that the the Passover meal, the Last Supper, was held likely at John Mark's family's home. We're told for sure in Acts 12 that this was like a, a gathering place for the early church. And many, many believe that it was where this Last Supper takes place before the events of the passage we read today. So just imagine a young Mark who then gets to be included. Imagine the honor and the excitement. Jesus of Nazareth, he's in your house, and then you get to just tag along and go sleep overnight with him and the disciples. The honor, the excitement. And yet as John Mark goes to sleep and camps out with these men. He is awoken by a commotion of high priests and temple guard who've come to arrest Jesus. And I just imagine him all throughout this evening being on the fringes as a young man, you know, just happy to be there, being on the outskirts of the action. And then he gets to see with his own eyes all these disciples run away and flee as we're plainly told. Verse 50, they all, meaning all the disciples, they left Jesus and they fled and he was being arrested. And I just imagine this young John Mark following from what he felt like was a distance, maybe still groggy, maybe not knowing if he was really awake, maybe thinking he was having a nightmare. He sees Jesus being led away and arrested And he's following, and yet somebody from this mob sees this young man, and then they try to seize him. And we hear what happens. He runs away, and he runs away naked and exposed. Why would Mark include this embarrassing, shame-filled moment into this story? Why would Peter share with the early church and share 
with Mark such brutal honesty about himself because they're, they're honest and they include all of these truths about how they've messed up because in the midst of the darkness of their failings, what they know and what they long for everyone to know is that the light of the mercy and grace of Jesus in the midst of the darkness of their screw-ups, he shines bright. Peter and, and John Mark, they're not trying to impress us with their history. They are profoundly impressed and changed by Jesus as it relates to their history. They're not concerned with looking honorable. They're concerned with showing honestly the saving grace of Jesus. And we need that because we like them. We're going to fall short. We do, and we mess up, and we deny, and we run away, and and they remind us through their own failings that we see Jesus at work. This is what the story is about. It's, it's a passage about profound failure, and it is painful. It's uncomfortable. And in the midst of it, we see the beauty of Jesus in the pain. And so allow me to pick up where Caleb left off and read, picking up into the actual reality of the denial of Peter. We're going to pick up in verse 53. This is Jesus before the council. And they led Jesus to the high priests, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony it did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him saying, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest, he tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all, they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him, to cover his face, and to strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed and the servant girl saw him again and began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders said to Peter, certainly you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. 
And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. There, there's a lot that we could look at in this passage. It's, it's rich with things for us. But there's a question I'd like to explore first. And the question is, what, what led Peter to this denial? How did this come about in Peter's life? And so there's four things I want us to see to answer that question. And the first is this. One, pride leads to Peter's denial. Look at again how the story begins. Jesus said to them, hey, you'll fall away for it was written, I will strike the sheep and, and, and uh, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, hey, even though they all fall away, I will not. <laughs> Listen to that again. Even though they all fall away, looking at all of his friends around the table, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And this is Peter's response emphatically. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then they all chime in and said the same. See, Peter, I don't believe, he's not, he, he's not aware that he's being dishonest here. He's not lying here. He, he believes what he's saying in this moment but ironically, like Peter's a know-it-all. We've seen this all throughout Mark. Like he's always chiming in and, and telling everyone how it is, even Jesus again and again. And ironically here, he doesn't know himself, nor does he know Jesus. He's like this collision of ignorance and arrogance in this moment. He's ignorant of his own nature and his heart. He's proclaiming like, hey, I'm the exception. Even if all these guys leave you, Jesus, I won't. And it's probably the most reference verse in all of the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. And, and, and what's really staggering in this moment is once again, Peter thinks he knows more than Jesus. Jesus is plainly telling him something and Peter's like, no, son of God, that's not quite right. And it, this pride is contagious, right? These other disciples, they chime in. See, whenever we find ourselves saying to God or to others or even to our own heart, hey, God, above all else, you can count on me and my strength and my will and my ability and my faithfulness. God, you can put your faith in me That's a, a dangerous place to be. You're on the thin ice of your own strength, your own righteousness. And what we see in Peter's life is that his denial of Jesus begins with a prideful self-reliance in his own ability that leads to, listen to this, him belittling and dismissing the very word of Jesus. And so the lesson First, for us, the thing that we need to, to hold on to, the, the, the flashing red light on the dashboard is, hey, beware of the danger of misplaced confidence in ourselves and not in God. And the second thing that we need to see is that Peter had too much pride and too little prayer, and these things are always connected. That's number two. Prayerlessness leads to Peter's denial. 
that if we think in our own ability and strength, we can count, then that is inevitably going to lead to a life that lacks prayer. Because why would we pray? Pride is the waters that quench the fire of prayer every, every time. It's worth remembering that right here, right, they all went up to this mountain to pray, but Jesus invites to draw near to him who? Peter, James, and John, these three closest disciples, even in the midst of the 12. And and there was another time in Mark chapter 9 where he invited those same three up to a mountain overnight to be with him. And and it was the transfiguration. He revealed to them, really in 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 a beautiful way, the highest moment of his earthly ministry where he was transfigured. His glory was revealed and he's hanging out with Elijah and Moses. They got to see this with their own eyes. And here, once again, he's inviting them to draw near, but it's a a moment of just deep pain. It's a valley, and Jesus is, is praying in desperation and asking them, hey, sit here while I pray. He shares his heart with these men. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And Peter, who had just said, like, hey, everybody else might, might run away, but, you know, I'm, I'm your man. I'm with you forever. Jesus gives him and these disciples plain instructions, pouring out his heart. Stay here. Keep watch. And he goes a little way off to pray to his heavenly father. And Jesus prays this beautiful prayer, just like he taught us to pray. Your kingdom come. He's saying, heavenly father, here's, here are my passions. Here's my heart. You take them and you give me your heart. Your will be done. If there's any way to take the cross from me, to take this cup from me, you take it away. But above all, I'm going to obey your will. And so Jesus prays a little while and he comes back and we see what happens in verse 37. (laughs) Keep count with me. One. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not keep watch one hour? Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And then here we are, 2, verse 40. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know how to answer him. And then 41, a third time, And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of a sinner. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayer is at hand. Two weeks ago, if you would have asked me, like, how many times does Peter fall asleep on Jesus? I don't know if I would have remembered three because that seems unbelievable, right? (laughs) Jesus, Messiah, Savior, my King. Like, okay, you fall asleep once. It's like you're tired. Come on, right? You know? But two times, three times, it seems unbelievable. Yeah, I can believe it. I see myself in it. But you, you ask, like, hey, what's going on? What, what, what is happening? Surely there was something happening that was, like, beyond their control. I, I think of, this is dating me, right? But I think of uh, The Wizard of Oz, the book or the, or the movie, 
And there's that moment where that band has the the Emerald City in in their sights and they cut through that poppy field and yet there's just some kind of curse on those flowers and then the dog drops first and then Dorothy and then literally the the lion just is like conking out and the the scarecrow and the timid are freaking out because there's some kind of poison, right? Some kind of sedative that's sabotaging their mission. And I'm like, well, was there like something going on here with Peter, John, and James? But the sedative that lulled them to sleep was just self-reliance. On some level, they didn't believe, Jesus knew and believed and had plainly told them what was, fa- what, what, what was coming, what he was facing, and they, in their self-reliance and disbelief, are, are saying, you know, it's not important right now to pray. Three times. And I just am examining my own life, and I invite you to examine your own life and, and, and just wrestle with the fact that one reason that I don't pray is just because on some level, like I should, and to the extent I should, is on some level, I just don't believe I need to pray. I have friends that aren't yet believers in Jesus, and, and I should pray for them more, and yet I believe on some level, like, the, f- the power of my niceness and the cleverness of my words are going to help lead them into faith in Jesus. And the reality is, no, those things are far too weak that will take the, the Spirit of God, giving them the gift of faith, and I have to pray Think about the high call of raising my kids, and man, I will create spreadsheets of activities and the intentionality that I will bring and the books that I will read. Those are all great, and yet if I'm not praying for my children, I'm building something that won't last through my parenting. If I'm doing that on my own strength, relying on myself, it could go on and on, but for our church, our city, we've seen God do beautiful things, but if we hope to see him work and in us and through us. And we're going to do that just based on our own plans and schemes and cleverness. It's, it's never going to come to anything lasting without dependent prayer on our Heavenly Father. Jesus puts it this way in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. So Peter, with with his pride, is given the simple command from Jesus, keep watch, stay awake, pray. And this follower who says, man, I'll die for you, he can't stay awake for Jesus. This leads to the third thing that precedes Peter's denial. These passions misdirected lead to Peter's denial. Verse 47 but one of those who stood, he, he stood by, drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. This accounts in all four Gospels. This is how Matthew tells this moment of the story in Matthew 26, verse 50. He says, they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Luke, the doctor and historian in his gospel, he tells the moment this way. He says, and one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear And Jesus said, no more of this. And he 
touched his ear and healed him. And so we're asking ourselves the question, the suspense is killing me. Who's trying to cut someone's head off? Who's the one drawing the sword? Then Simon Peter, John tells us, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus, John tells us. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? But Peter, when, when he should have been doing something, namely, namely like praying with Jesus as he asked, what is it? he's doing nothing. And when he, when he should have been doing nothing, namely not trying to kill someone, right? He's like, I got this. Shata, you know? And, and thank God he's not even good at killing somebody, right? I just, I can't, I can imagine, G- I know this is like a solemn, serious moment, but I just imagine the look of Jesus in Jesus' eyes when he looks at Peter and there's some like presence of like, help me help you, you know? Like I am trying to lay my life down, not only for your soul, but all of humanity. And you keep on adding to my to-do list. I've got to now put this guy's ear back on, uh, you know? I'm trying to go to the cross. Work with me, Peter, Right? And I, I just, I'm so thankful for Peter because he's like the canvas that Jesus just paints his grace and mercy and patience on. Peter, you're going to deny me. No, you're wrong. <laughs> Peter, pray with me. I'm going to take a nap, you know? Peter, I'm going to die. Nope, I'm going to kill somebody, Yeah. And we just see that like Peter is passionate. You can't deny that but his passion is misplaced. He's brave. He's probably outgunned or outsorted or however you want to put it, you know? And he's, he's down to fight, but Jesus hasn't asked him to fight and he's still not listening to the heart of Jesus. And remember in Mark chapter eight, right? Jesus tells him plainly that he's going to be killed. He's going to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests. And after three days, he's going to rise again. He's plainly telling Peter what he's come to do, to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And Peter's response is, I'm going to take you aside, Jesus, and tell you, no, 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 that's not the plan. (laughs) And Jesus rebukes Peter. And what does he say? He says, get behind me, Satan. For you... For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And here Peter again, that same heart, he's not setting his mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See the progression there? He's prideful. He thinks too highly of himself. He's prayerless because he's self-reliant. And now his passions are misguided. He thinks he's helping, but because he's ignorant to the to heart of God, he's, he's hurting. And so this is a question worth asking and slowing down and probably returning to this week and asking ourselves a question that's something like, hey, where am I passionate and where am I drawing my sword to strike? And yet because I'm coming from a place of pride and prayerlessness, 
My passions very well might be misdirected, and I'm not acting to follow the heart of God, but I'm acting to follow my own heart, and as a result, I'm going to hurt some people that Jesus is going to have to follow up and heal later. Finally, the fourth thing. Perceiving too late leads to Peter's denial. Remember where we begin, verse 27, Jesus says, hey, you'll fall away, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, Jesus tells them, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter says to him, hey, even, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus tells him specifically, truly, I tell you, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter comes back again emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then we see where we end, and Peter's in the courtyard, and this little girl is saying, hey, you're with Jesus of Nazareth, and he's saying, I don't even know what you're talking about. Who is that and what's happening? I neither know nor understand what you mean. I so don't know, Jesus. Your question doesn't even make sense to me. And then again, the crowd, the bystanders say, this man is one of them, and he denies it. And they say, certainly, you were with him. You're, you're a Galilean. His accent was just like, the Galilean accent was so strong. It was, I don't, I just imagine somebody from like Louisiana. Like they say a few things and you're like, I know where you're from, right? Right away. And the same thing with the Galilean accent. Like everybody knew the specific town that Peter was from. The moment he opened his mouth, it gave it away. Yet he is drawing curses upon himself, swearing emphatically, I don't know him. I don't know of who you speak of. There's this sense that we get honestly when we read the Gospel of Mark that again and again the disciples are being invited to consider and think deeply on these things that Jesus is leading them into and sharing with them, and that time and time again, Peter and all the disciples are failing to perceive and ponder, process. They're, they're neglecting to try to understand what Jesus is leading them into. But here we do see, in the end, after this rooster crows twice, that, that Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken. And he could have and should have, before this moment, really taking Jesus at his word. But because of his thoughtlessness, it was too late, too late and his denial had, had come about, it had been done. And as I'm reading this this week, and even now in this moment, I'm just asking myself and reminding, or being reminded of moments where I, the Holy Spirit will, will call me to do something. I'll read scripture or I'll, I'll just feel in my conscience just like a leading to, hey, make it a priority to, to study this theological topic. You need to 
to make it a priority to, to dig deep into that. Or most likely, like, hey, God has put somebody on my heart, and I feel like a, a leading to reach out to them, to stop whatever I'm doing that feels important, to lay it down, and to pick up the phone and say, hey, I was praying for you. Is everything okay? And yet, often in my life, I've said, yeah, I should do that, and I will get to it when I best see fit. It's like what happens in our household a lot, what Anna and I call slow obedience. It's not like outright, like, no, it's a bad idea, but it's like, I'll get around to that when I get around to that. And I see that in Peter's life. I see it in my life where God's leading me to do something and he's telling me something and I'm, I'm saying that, that, I'll take that under consideration. And yet, we can see the kindness of Jesus at work in Peter's life here. What does a, a rooster crow represent? What well, represents like a waking up. And through this rooster's crow, Jesus is ringing an alarm in the life of Peter to say, hey, it's time to wake up. It's time to open your eyes. It's time to see. And Peter, in a real way, he fell asleep on Jesus three times. I believe that that is helping us realize that he's still asleep as he's denying him in a real way. On a soul level, he's still sleeping in his pride, in his prayerlessness, in his misguided passions, his, his inability to perceive. He's asleep on a soul level, and, and this rooster crows and gives him a call to wake up. And he does, and it's unpleasant. It's hard. It breaks his heart, and he weeps because he, he remembers, he sees, he's awake to the truth of who he is and what he's done and how he's denied. And yet, the crow isn't a crow of condemnation. It's a, it's a crow of conviction that is calling Peter to wake up in repentance. What's, what's been beautiful about preaching through the book of Mark is that we come to passages that um, aren't easy to preach. They're hard to preach. I'm sure it's probably even harder to listen to. And yet in the difficulty, it's good. Because I, I, where my heart goes is 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. What's happening here in Peter's life? For godly grief for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. I have a friend in the room that asked me early in the series, hey, could you speak to the distinction between Judas and Peter? Why were their roads so different after they both let Jesus down? I think this in one verse can speak to the truth of what's happening. That, that Peter is heartbroken in his denial. He, he has grief, but it's a godly grief that we're going to see leads to salvation without regret. Where we see that in the Gospels, Judas was crushed. He felt bad, but it was a worldly sorrow that led to his death. And in Peter's godly grief in his broken heart, Jesus meets him. Remember what Jesus said at the beginning of our passage today. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And, and Jesus keeps his promises. And let's look at the moment Jesus keeps this promise. I'm going to read it to you. John chapter 21. And after Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, 
Thomas called the twin, Nathanael of Cana, and Galilee, the son of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Going back to the start. I'm going to what we were doing before Jesus called us to follow him. And they said, we'll go with you. And they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved, who's John, he's very secure in his identity in Jesus. And so he says, that disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his, listen to this, when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging it, the, the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. That symbolizes that there were 153 fish that they caught. Just if you're wondering. (laughs) And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, to Simon Peter who fell asleep on him three times, the Simon Peter who emphatically denied that he even knew him. Three times, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, he said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he, Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, tend my sheep. And Jesus, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said it to him a third time. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. John Mark writes, this, or excuse me, John writes, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. 
And after saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. See, as we close, and we look at the way that Peter failed and and the shame and the embarrassment and the denial, what we see in the life and the ministry of the resurrected Jesus is that he steps into the brokenness and the darkness of Peter's sin. And what does he do? Every time Peter fell asleep on him, for every time Peter denied him, Jesus moves towards Peter and he, and he invites him to affirm his love and repentance. And not only that, but what does he do? Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. He restores his calling. And then, this is beautiful, right? What was, what was Peter's emphatic proclamation at the beginning of Mark 14? If, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then what we see Jesus say to Peter at the end of John is, hey, I've so fully restored you. You're so showered in my my grace and mercy. Peter knows who Jesus is, and he dives into the the grace and mercy of Jesus and swims to him. He can't can't wait for a a, a hundred-yard boat ride to be with him. He thinks in in full Peter fashion, I can outswim this boat. I I can get there sooner because I just need to be with Jesus because I know He has love and grace and mercy for me to the extent that that Jesus says, hey, you know, you promised that if you must die to be with me, you'll not deny me. That actually is going to be fully true. Because Peter, who was scared to admit admit he knew Jesus, he spends the rest of his life boldly proclaiming the truth of the gospel, the kingdom of God, that Jesus died and rose again And he so refuses to deny that truth and who Jesus is that he does indeed lay his life down. He's crucified just like Jesus. And and church history tells us he insists on being crucified upside down because he's not worthy of dying the same way Jesus died. Peter's denial, the power of his pride, and the weakness of his prayerlessness, and the failure to to understand and perceive and his misguided passions, none of that stands a chance against the power of the love of Jesus for Peter. And so we might be here this this morning and and be wrestling with, hey, I am prideful. I am prayerless. I'm prayerless. I'm convicted by all these ways I don't understand and how I'm slow to obey. And I've got all these passions that are probably misdirected and I'm trying to do good, but I'm, I'm so committed to my will and not the Father's will. I might be doing harm and not good, and we can feel shame and embarrassment truly and think, where do I go? And, and the good news here is that we can't say, hey, God wants nothing to do with me. We look at Peter's life and Mark's life, and we can say, actually, God wants everything to do with a person like me, that he's pursuing me, he loves me, and waiting for me when I experience godly grief that leads me to repentance in life, I have a Savior who loves me that's ready to restore when I come to him. Let's stand and pray. Father, we pray for the help to, to be like Peter here in the most beautiful way that we can dive in to your grace and mercy and swim. That we are invited to, to draw near to you because you first are drawing near to us. And so whether 
I have a friend in this room who's followed you for a long time and they're convicted of ways that were failing like Peter. I pray that we would respond and move towards you to know your grace and love. And for my friends who have maybe come in this morning and, and been wrestling with who you are and they've, they've never run to you in faith and given their life to you, I pray that you, Spirit of God, would help them see you as true king who has loved them and does love them in a greater, more powerful way than anyone can and will, and that in your love there is life and abundance and forgiveness, true life, eternal life. So may they have faith to trust you for the first time. We pray all of this, Jesus, in your name. And God's people said, amen.